Hi, welcome to Musicians on the Record, the show where we get the musician's story. I'm David Ward. Welcome and thanks for listening. And today, it's not just any music story. This is a history lesson in rock and roll. Legendary drummer for the Wrecking Crew, Hal Blaine, is on the show today. What an amazing time I had talking with Hal. He's just an incredible musician, incredible drummer. He's played on the soundtrack of of our lives. Odds are, if you're listening to any kind of music from the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, it's Hal Blaine. He's played with everyone from Elvis to Frank Sinatra, Nancy Sinatra, The Carpenters, Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Simon and Garfunkel. Yep, that is Hal Blaine. The Beach Boys, of course, with Pet Sounds, legendary stuff. So many hit singles, over 35,000 recorded tracks. This is going to be fun today. Mr. Hal Blaine is on Musicians on the Record. Really glad you're here for the audio podcast. If you'd like to watch these interviews, you can do that as well. All of our video podcasts are available on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and all of them are on our website at musiciansontherecord.com. Here's my time with Hal Blaine. Thank you very much, David. I, I am a legend in my own mind. <laughs> That's right. And in, and in many of our other minds as well, Hal. So, well. Uh, in, in doing the, the research for talking with you, you've played on at least 40 number one hit singles, 150 top 10 hits, and I didn't realize this until just a little while ago, six consecutive Record of the Year Grammy Award winners from 1966 to 71. That's fantastic. I don't think that's ever been done or probably will be done again. Well, then I've had two more since then. Two more? So. And who was that with, Hal? Well, the seventh one was the Captain and Tennille. Yeah. That will keep us together. You bet. And then the one last year was with Glenn Campbell. Wow. And uh, I'm Not Gonna Miss You or something like that. I forget mm. the name of it now. Mm. It was a shock to all of us. Yeah. When I got the call that it became, it was record of the year. Wow. That's amazing. 2015. Yeah. So you're still going strong, still rocking out then. Well, <laughs> one of those things, you know, I was very lucky that way. Yes. And Glenn, of course, is a, it's a very sad story about Glenn. Yeah. And he's suffering with, with Alzheimer's. Sure. So yeah. his family's with him, and he's he just he's in a, a hospice mm. in the Nashville area. Mm-hmm. And they tell me that he goes from room to room singing wow. for all these people who do not know who he is and he mm. doesn't know who they are. Wow. It's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's really a very good guy. But he was a major one of the one of the founding fathers of our wrecking crew. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It also, yeah, and and your whole crew there. It also seems to me like even when we're little kids or just deep in the subconscious, how powerful music is. That if he is, oh, you know, if he's struggling with what he's struggling with, but still walking around and singing. You exactly. Know, yeah, that's exactly. that's amazing. That's amazing. So can we? Yeah. Well, we did his movie, and and at the end of the movie, they wanted to. 
they wanted to after we we did all kinds of interviews and stuff mm. for his film mm. and the director wanted to the director was uh, James Keach okay um, the guy that directed the uh, Johnny Cash movie ah yes great movie mm-hmm. anyway uh, they asked you know you think Glenn could sing and Glenn got the guitar out wow and we made the record wow about two takes and that was it perfect it's incredible two takes Mm. is that just about yeah it was perfect yeah is that how you used to do it in the record in the wrecking crew two takes more more or less more or less less. (laughs) why mess with perfection right just uh, exactly if it works yeah don't fix it there you go there you go (laughs) fantastic so I'm wondering, can we start with uh, more of the beginnings for you? Uh, and I know we were just chatting that you were born in Holyoke, Massachusetts. When did I this... was born in born in Holyoke? Yeah, 1929. And I'm getting older as we speak. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? And right? then when when I was about uh, six or seven years old, we moved to Hartford, Connecticut. Okay, got it. And that's where I went to high school, River High, in in Hartford. And, uh, you know, I just kind of got hung up on drums, watching the kids across the street marching and ah. etc. I think it was St. Michael's or one of those saints. Okay. The school had a marching band. Mm-hmm. And I used to go over and watch them all the time, and I just, I guess I got hooked. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I guess I'm also lucky that I had good ears for playing. Yes. Because... Every time I, you know, did some work somewhere when I became a professional, mm. and that was part of it was after I got home from Korea, mm-hmm. I was studying with Roy Knapp, who was a, the teacher of Gene Krupa. Mm. There was a great school. It was the, the uh, um, Percussion Institute. Okay. Where was that? Of, uh, in Chicago. Chicago. Spent three years there, graduated came to L.A. and got very lucky. Mm. And so was music in your family at all growing up? Not at all. Not at Oddly all. Enough, Oddly enough, there was a violin in a case huh. in the closet that I remember seeing all the time. Okay. And one day I got that old violin out after I became successful. I got the violin out and I took it to a violin maker in, in Hollywood mm-hmm. who completely went through it. It was a, just a beautiful instrument. Mm. And I decided it's silly to just be sitting there. Yeah. And so I went to the union and I found out about a fellow who had a, a young son mm-hmm. who wanted to be a violinist. His oh, wow. father was a, was a uh, his father was a guitarist. Mm-hmm. And so I donated mm, lovely. The, um, this Italian violin that I had wow. that my dad had, I guess, brought from Europe. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, wow. So anyway, it was just one of those things. But, but the guy that received it, this little boy, mm-hmm. and they took pictures of us at the Union, mm. just a little, little tot. I don't know. He was probably seven, eight years old, mm. something like that. <laughs> maybe nine years old, yeah. and he's become one of the major 
fiddlers in the country field and one of the great classical players. Wow. And he's still playing that that uh, violin. That's amazing. But he, he can tell the story that he got his first violin from Hal Blaine. Well, that's true, yeah. It's pretty yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. What an inspiration that is, right? It's terrific. I've, I've been thrilled about it for years because he's been he's been a first violin hmm. call in New York for a long time wow. with a lot of people. Wow, yeah. that's, that's incredible. Why do you think for you how you were called to the drums versus, and I don't, I don't know if you play any other instruments, but why the drums for you, do you think? Well, I think I had good ears, first of all. Hmm. And when I finally went to school, uh, got home from Korea, hmm. I did take the GI Bill. That's right. Okay. And uh, of course, I studied piano. I studied voice. Hmm. We studied tap dancing. Hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on at the Roy Knapp School of Percussion. Yeah. And uh, one of my classmates was Buddy Harmon, who became the drummer out of Nashville, it actually introduced drums to the Nashville wow. country scene. <laughs> Amazing. And he was doing all those great records. Mm. Um, there were over 500 drummers in that school at the time. That's incredible. It was a, just a wonderful, wonderful school. Great camaraderie, and yeah. and uh, you got to meet all the other drummers. And Out of all those drummers, I think three of us were actually working drummers. That's amazing. So it sounds like Roy Knapp was one of the important teachers for you, musically. Very important, very important. He had a number of teachers Hmm. in the school, and um, Margie Himes was teaching, who was one of the great vibraphonists. Hmm. She was teaching mallets to a lot of us, Hmm. and... um, I don't know, it was Bill Seaman or Phil Seaman, something like that. He was one of the great teachers. Hmm. There were a lot of great teachers there, and they really cared. Hmm. And it was wonderful. And fortunately for me, I was saying out of the over 500 drummers going to school at the time, I got a long story too long to go into, but I got a job working in a, in a nightclub with strippers. <laughs> and while I was doing these strippers, yeah. you know, there were 10 or 12 strippers a night. Yeah. And you're sight reading the music. Wow. <laughs> Fortunately, I, you know, I was going to school from 8 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. And then I was going to work at night from 8 at night to 4 in the morning. Oh, my God. Burning the candle. All of that sight, all of the sight reading that I was doing. Mm. Um, really prepared me for what I eventually fell into, like yes. falling into a vat of chocolate. Yes, right. It was the Hollywood uh, session scene, mm. and um, thank goodness that I did study. Yes, I never nothing ever panicked me. It was just you know there was times when I was doing symphony work in the morning mm. and rock and roll in the afternoon <laughs> or in the early evening. Yeah. Who, who, and just hit after hit after hit after 
I had a little room. I had a, my little office full of gold records. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible just seeing the list of... of I, I used to work on an oldies radio station, Hal. Uh, I was a disc jockey oh, for about 10 years. Okay. And, um, you know, I basically our... our our entire catalog you played on. It was incredible. So I was, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I was, yeah. I was very, very fortunate. Yes. No question. Who were some of the musicians for you early on, Hal, that inspired you? Well, you know, Gene Krupa was the man. Mm, absolutely. As the, as the drummer. And then, of course, Buddy Rich came along, yeah. and there's no one like Buddy Rich, and he became a good friend of mine. Nice. In fact, Buddy hired me to do his daughter's album. Oh, wow. And one of, my, one of the great compliments that I received was some of the guys asked Buddy why he didn't play on his own, on his daughter's, Kathy's own album. Mm. And he said, I, he said, I wanted the best. Wow. And so, yeah. boy, what a compliment to get. And, and Buddy and I became friends. That's great. It's really you high, know, high he was, praise. He was a good guy. He was a good guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there were a number of all those great drummers out there. Um, mm. Frankie Cap, who was from, from the Boston area, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was a great jazz drummer. Mm. And one of the really great drummers who became quite famous. Mm. He introduced the double bass drums to the world. You're talking about Carmine. Oh, Louis Belson or Carmine? Louis Belson. Yeah, Louis, Louis Belson. Belson sure, course, yeah. absolutely. Another, another good legend. guy and a good friend. And I, yeah. you know, and Shelly Mann... Yes. And I, you know, I came along at a time when a lot of the top drummers refused to even consider playing rock and roll. Mm, yeah. And so all of a sudden, yeah. when I fell into I was happy to play. Sure. And I didn't care. Sure. And I started getting calls from people like Shelly Mann. Wow. Asking me, what is it you're doing on these <laughs> records there? And I told him, Shelly... It's just a backbeat on two and four. That's yeah, it. right, right. <laughs> Depending on the feel of the song, if it's a if it's a dotted feel, yes, then it's a you, you still do doing it on two and four. Yeah, if it happens to be in three or six, you know, you put the the, the backbeat somewhere else. Yeah, and all these people became very good friends of mine. They used to ask if they could come by and watch me in the studio. Of oh, course. Wow. Absolutely. That would be a treat right there. Amazing. You know, it's funny. You mentioned A Taste of Honey. Mm. Mm-hmm. One of the great stories. That was my very first Grammy-winning record of the year. Yes. Back in And 66. I'm walking down the street in Hollywood. And, and uh, I lived in Hollywood, of course. And mm-hmm. Shelly Mann had just opened his club called Shelly's Manhole. And uh, it was a great little jazz club, and a lot of people were hanging out there and so forth. So I'm walking down the street, and Shelly's out in front of the place, washing a window or something, and he spots me, and he calls me over and says, man, he says, I love what you did on that record. It's such a big hit, you know, and I said, yeah, it's great fun. Herb Albert and Jerry Moss. Were the owners of A and M, and yes. it all started when we did a record called "The Lonely Bull," mm. and then of course we did uh, "Taste of Honey" and so yeah. many great records. Absolutely. But the point is that I, you know, and I'm a, a, a real prankster, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, Shelley, 
Shelly, you're not going to be very happy, but with the fame that Herb is getting, mm. he's going to be opening a jazz club right down the street here. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, and, her, and Shelly <laughs> said, he was almost crying. He said, oh, God, oh no, no, man, right. I just opened this club oh, and we're no. doing well. And, yeah. and he said, and Herb was going to open a club. I said, yeah. And he said, you know the name of the club? And I said, yeah. He's going to call it the Tijuana Brass Hole. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, that's it was great. a great laugh. Yes, yeah. And he, Shelley was happy that he wasn't really Yeah, opening. yeah, he got the joke after a while, right? Yeah. But the rest of it for Herb, of course, became he yeah. he purchased that entire block mm. on La Brea, and, and, mm. uh, which today is in the hands of, of the Muppets. Is it? Uh, the gym. The Hanson people bought all of that out from Interesting. Herb, yeah. Have you played on anything with them? I did the Muppets. I did John Denver and the Muppets. Right, of course, of course. I spent uh, 11 years with John Denver. It was just fantastic all those years with John. Wow. When he would go out, which was rare, he didn't go, go out that much. Mm. But one of the things you learn in the business is that the top, Ring the the highest echelon sort of is being a studio musician, mm. and if and if you're on the road, mm-hmm. the contractors who do all the hiring, mm. they're not going to call you because chances are you're on the road. Interesting. Mm. So I had a secretary that that did all my booking, mm. and she never said I was on the road because yeah. when I went out with John Denver, I was out for two, three, four days. That was it. Okay. So and uh, people, we were booked. I mean, the wrecking crew was booked for mm. probably two and a half, three months in advance for every everything we did practically. It's amazing. So when people called and got my secretary, they would say they wanted me for a certain date on a certain day, and uh, Alan was her name, and she would say. Well, Hal is busy that day. Mm, yeah. And they would say, well, can I book another day? Well, there's one uh, three weeks after that, and they'd say, we'll take it, we'll take it. Yeah. She didn't so have that's to... where it was. I mean, you know, the word got around like wildfire that we were... Yeah. The wrecking crew was just making hit after hit after hit. Right. But there was some concern that at, initially for you guys that you were wrecking the business. That's where the name came from, correct? Well, that's what it came from. I was working. I was actually working as an actor for Walt Disney. And when I started getting calls at, at the Disney studio playing music, mm-hmm. it was for Walt. And it was just fine. He was a terrific guy. Yeah. And uh, lots of great stories about him. But... And, the, uh, you know, Walt's history is, <laughs> to this day, is still yeah. one of the great mm. historical people. Yeah. And what happened was that we got a call at um, the, Dis- at the uh, Disney Studios mm-hmm. for a movie that they were doing about an automobile, a little car, Herbie the Car, it was yes, called. Yes, sure, yes. And I had worked with uh, Buddy Hackett, who was in the movie. Ah, right, yeah. And Buddy was a friend of mine, and I thought, you know, how this is great. Uh, we're both in the same movie. Yeah. But I was playing drums. I mean, I was went in there as a musician. Yes. 
And so when we arrived for, I think it was a 12, for us it was a 12 o'clock downbeat, mm. they were just dismissing a big orchestra mm. from the, the music stage at mm-hmm. Disney. Mm-hmm. And we went in and this fellow started talking to us like we hadn't, like we were punk kids off of the street, couldn't read music, didn't know a thing about the business. Yeah. They had no idea we had been doing everybody's records right. and movies. Yeah. Uh, with me, I just had my fifth Oscar-winning movie. Wow. Anyway, no big deal. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, we would see a lot of the older guys standing around. These were the the classically trained musicians mm. who had been doing all the MGM spectaculars and all the Warner Brothers stuff. Yes. And they were hanging around to see what it was all about. Right, right. And they're watching us. Mm. And the fact of the matter, what happened was that this uh, conductor Mm. was talking down to us Mm. like we'd never been in the studio. And he was saying, we don't want to frighten you with microphones. And we're saying, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, okay. (laughs) And uh, don't let the music scare you. And yeah. and he was explaining what a click track was. Didn't know <laughs> we'd been doing click tracks for years. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that he told the click track lady mm. to slow down the click. Oh, wow. And he explained to us that there's, you'll hear a click in your headset. Yeah. And we, it's just to keep us in the same groove so we can all play together. It was eight or nine of us. Yeah. Including Glenn Campbell, mm. who didn't read a note of music. I've he could hear that. anything and play. It's incredible, yeah. And uh, so when he told the lady to slow the click down and go ahead and play it mm. so we could hear it and watch the music so we could memorize whatever we could memorize. Mm. And when she hit the click, it was the, it was the proper click. And as soon as we heard click, click, five, six, seven, eight, we were playing. Yeah, right. And we played well over 100 bars of music perfectly. Amazing. What was his reaction? He, well, that was it. He was completely amazed. Yeah. He said, how did you guys do that? <laughs> and Tommy Tedesco, the, one of the greatest yes, guitar, yes. guitarists ever. Absolutely. He stood up with almost like a little child with his thumb in his mouth. Mm. And he said, well, we practice a lot during the day, sir. <laughs> that's great. And we broke up so bad, and that yeah. became one of the by-phrases that we used for many years. Yes. Because many times, producers would come out and say, how did you guys do that? It was yeah. exactly what we wanted. Yeah. Well, we practice a lot during the day. Right. Anyway, I overheard several of these elderly musicians who had been watching us and here we were, Levi's, T-shirts, yeah. everybody smoked in those days. Sure. Yep. Nobody talked to, everybody with us, yeah. it was all fun and games. We right. talked to each other. Mm. But those people used to sit around quietly, yeah. clean their own ashtrays. They never spoke unless they were spoken to. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That was the classical way of yes. the MGM spectaculars and so sure. forth. Sure, sure. And these are the guys that I heard saying, these kids are going to wreck the business. Right. And so when I, that night when I called my secretary, Arlen, mm. who owned the answering service for the musician, all the musicians in Hollywood, mm. 
I said, from now on, we're going to be, I'm going to call us the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. So when I call you and tell you to book the crew, because yeah. I started contracting also. Yes. And uh, that was just part of the job. Sure. Well, you guys and were. So we became, we became the Wrecking Crew. Absolutely. You guys were a real band for years, a band together, just like any other band that you hear about. But you didn't. Oh, hear, absolutely. Yeah, you didn't hear about you guys too much, though. Did you ever take the Wrecking Crew out on the road or think about going on tour? With Never them? did. No. People have asked us that for years. Yeah. Do you guys ever consider going out on the road and doing an act or something? Yeah. I don't know. I never considered it. Uh, you know, I can sit. I was one of those lucky guys that I bought a beautiful mm. mansion and estate in the Hollywood Hills, mm. right behind the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. Uh, it was an amazing time for all of us because Absolutely. we were all b- buying new cars mm. and new homes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and really, you were there just at that cusp, the 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 birth of rock and roll and how powerful that was and you know even the classical exactly. the classical guys were seeing that as far as those oh, there's a change and i and i must tell you that within weeks mm. or even less mm. we were getting calls from a lot of classical musicians mm-hmm. who are saying yeah. i wish you would consider us one of these days if you're going to do some <laughs> Some stuff where you need strings or an oboe or whatever. Wow! Uh, I mean, the Beach Boys is a perfect, yeah. perfect example yes. of of Brian Wilson, yeah. who didn't read a note of music but played piano. Wow! And you know, I started contracting for him when when the contractor unfortunately passed away. Steve uh-huh. Douglas, one of the great saxophonists, mm. passed away. Brian. Used to come to my house almost every day and play my piano. My wow. My my little daughter would sit on his knee and he'd bounce her on his knee. Amazing. I mean, it was a it, the camaraderie was unbelievable. Yes. And yeah. yet, every time we went in the studio, it was a hit record. Absolutely. We did all those Beach Boys. My God. You were on Pet Which Sounds. Called, eventually, it was called Pet Sounds. Yes, right? it's fantastic. Yeah, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I, you know, in addition to yourself, I consider uh, Brian Wilson a musical genius. I didn't realize absolutely that he didn't write, absolutely uh, didn't read music. That's but he certainly wrote a lot of that music, didn't he? Well, the thing was, he didn't write it with pencil in hand. Okay, what he wrote was just he had. He didn't have the big sheets of music. Mm. He had a he had a a, a scratch pad, mm. and he would write how many bars it was, and where we started, wow. where we stopped in between, where there were breaks, yeah. and where we ended. Yeah. And he would also mark in whatever the chord was. It's incredible. And then when we would rehearse it. He would say, "I don't like that chord that would, that was there. Let's change it." Yeah. And everybody would put in their two cents, and they would come up with the right chord mm. for what he was looking for. And of course, eventually, he got much better at it. Yeah. Uh, as you know, he was studying some. Sure. And a lot of people did not know that Brian was deaf in one ear. Ah, wow! No, I didn't know. It was that really either. a terrible tragedy where that his mm. father. Uh, had slugged him with a mm, two by four one oh time. Oh god, awful! Yeah, and uh, broke his eardrum, and and mm. it never got touched after that. Wow, 
so Brian used to come to my house almost every day. He loved the cookies. I had a, a <laughs> housemaid that was a baker. Yeah. And uh, he loved her cookies and milk. Yeah. And he used to come over and give me great records that, that Capitol Records was giving him. Amazing. And I would say, Brian, this is your name on here. This right. is your stuff. Yeah. Not my stuff. Right. <laughs> but he was really honored. But he just, yeah. he was a sweetheart of a guy. He really was a sweetheart. Yeah. And unfortunately, he fell into that yeah. terrible thing that some guys fall into. And, and I went through that whole mm. period with him. Yeah. And to thank God, it all cleared up. Yes. And uh, to this day, as I saw him not long ago, mm. I was doing a documentary at mm. one of the major studios. Mm. And it happened to be where we did most of the uh, Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys stuff. Yeah. wow. Among others, we did everybody's records yes, there. It, yes. it was called United Western. Okay. Mm. And then it was called Ocean Way, and it went through various owners. Mm. And uh, the wind-up was it's now called East West Recording Studios, mm. and that's where we did Frank Sinatra. We did mm. we did anything gigantic. Yeah. We did in the big studio. Yeah. And anything small, we did in the little uh, the Studio C, which is considered the Brian Wilson studio, because right. that's where we recorded every Beach Boy hit. It's amazing. It's amazing. But Brian would Brian loved to experiment. We would yes. go to Gold Star sometimes, mm -hmm. a very popular studio in Hollywood, mm. uh, and in try various studios and. Brian, of course, was a genius because yeah. he would come up with instruments like the theremin. Right. Yes. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah, nobody, nobody ever heard yeah. of a theremin on a rock and roll right. Beach Boy. Yeah, exactly. Beach song or right. a hot rod song. <laughs> right. Right. That's what that whole trend was. It was Beach Boys, Sun, Sand, Beautiful right. Blondes. That's right. In bikinis. Right, exactly. And also, we were doing all the beach movies. Right. Beach uh, blanket bingo. I mean, it just right. goes on and on yes. and on. You know, you, you've had such an amazing career. Probably couldn't even imagine this before you first started out. I wondered, what was your original musical dream just when you were first starting? Where, where did you Well, I started to say, when I was working in, and when I was going to school in Chicago, mm -hmm. I got this job because a drummer got drunk or drugged out or something, and okay. one of the dancers who lived in the hotel where I lived mm. called me and said, could you give him, come over here quickly? Mm. We need a drummer. The drummer uh, has been fired or he fell down or something, whatever. And so I immediately ran up, it, or I jumped on the trolley. It was only five, six blocks away. Mm -hmm. And I walked in, and I jumped on the drums. It was a fine drummer who was there. He was Harry James' drummer. Oh, God, wow. And uh, I took over his drums, yeah. and I played. Mm. And, and, of course, every every nightclub in Chicago was run by what they called the outfit. Okay. <laughs> kind of a high-class name for the month. Okay. I was I was wondering if they, we were going there. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and it seems like uh, from the from that night, the owners 
of Vince and Tony used to come out and talk to me. Mm. They'd say, hey, kid, you play nice, and mm. you don't smoke those crazy cigarettes. I yeah. said, no, 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 no. Yeah. And eventually, after a couple nights, they said, you got your own drums? I said, yeah. They said, bring them in, and we'll get rid of those drums, and we want to give you a job. He said, I'll wow. give you a hundred a quarter a week. Mm. And I said, my God. That's good money. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of money. Yeah. And it, the the hysterical part about it is that when Vince or Tony would call you into the office, mm. it was usually to run down something. Somebody did something. Okay. Yeah. But in my case, every time I went in there, mm. I was getting compliments. Wow. Fantastic. So at one point, mm. it was either Vince or Tony... They open up this big drapery, and there's a set of drums sitting there. Wow. And it turned out that either Vince or Tony was kind of fooling around with drums. They love drums. <laughs> That's fantastic. Everybody's but, a drummer, right? Yeah. But as I worked for these girls, and every night it was 10, 12, 14 girls, mm. and you're sight-reading music. Yeah. I'm studying all day, and I'm playing all night. Yes. And these and everyone, I just every one of these girls practically would come to me and say, "You know, you have a certain way with for playing my music." And it was just three of us: wow. piano, drums, and trumpet. Mm. <laughs> that yeah. was the band. No bass. Right. Amazing. I mean, it really was amazing. If I had to go to the bathroom, the piano player jumped on the drums. Is that right? It, uh, the trumpet player jumped jumped on the drums. Wow. If the piano player had to go to the bathroom, I would jump on the piano right? because I could play a few chords. Sure. And and these girls' music and they had they had full arrangements. Mm. And so you know, invention is a necessity, I guess. Yes. Uh, of of certain things, mm. and I wanted I was inventing little little things that would be noisemakers or whatever. Mm cymbal flares, various things just to fill up their music. And these gals used to come to me and they'd say, you know, Hal, we never had a drummer play this way. It was yeah. just, you're, you're just such a companist for us. Mm. And I learned very quickly, very young, mm. I learned that I was an accompanist. Yes. I wasn't. And there was no way as I, as I progressed mm. and became more sophisticated and so forth, I was never going to be a Gene Cooper or a Buddy Rich. I never thought about that. Yeah. Never knew I would be with Elvis Presley or, or Frank Sinatra or any of the Sinatras. Absolutely. I recorded with all of them. Yes. I became Nancy Sinatra's drummer for 33 years. That's incredible. We both retired together. Right. Wow. Yeah. These Both, both in studio and on tour, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Can you say a little bit of the difference between... Being in the studio, Hal, and going on tour, how did you have to approach it? What were the some similarities and differences there? You know, when we would do a concert, I would do a concert once in a while with Sonny and Cher, mm. with Jan and Dean, who were very, very big in those days. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I can't even think of everybody right now. I rarely did those kind of jobs. But it was fun to see an audience out there. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it makes you play great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
but I always felt that I was playing good or great in the studios. Yeah. But without without the audience yes. watching us. Right. Yeah. Who was watching us were the contractors, mm. the songwriters, mm -hmm. the artists themselves. They were with you, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Everything was done live mostly in those days was one yes. track right right absolutely and and until larry levine one of the great engineers and bones Howe, one of the super great engineers mm. who was also a drummer mm. uh they came along and they learned how to split tracks all of a sudden we had two tracks yes so they learned that we could what they called ping ponging aha uh uh-huh and and with the ping ponging, they could now create more tracks because they could put it, take everything off of track two, put it on track one, and now track two was open. Yeah, and we could do overdubs, we could do right. you know jingle bells, whatever we yes. had to do. Yes, and little by little, you don't realize you're studying these things. It's an education in itself. Absolutely. Learning as you and go. People, people like Bones Howe, when, when I started with Elvis, mm. people like Bones Howe, who loved my drumming, and he was a great jazz drummer. Yeah. Uh, Bones wouldn't do a date without me. Mm. Wow. And so, you know, the reputation gets, gets out real quick. Yes. That this wrecking crew, they do not wreck music whatsoever, but right. they're doing nothing but hit records. That's right. That's right. And so producers started coming from all over Europe, all the major cities in Europe, mm. from South America, from Mexico. I mean, it was unbelievable. It's absolutely. Just incredible. unbelievable. You, you know, when so I... Oh, yeah, go ahead. That, that was the reputation that just went around so quickly. Mm. And as I've said many times, it was like falling into a vat of chocolate. Yeah, was, what, what? Because it was, you know, there was a saying around the union. Mm -hmm. We used to get our checks at the union. Mm -hmm. So once a week or once every two weeks, you'd go to the union mm -hmm. and pick up all these work checks that you'd been doing for the last week or two. Yeah. And I'm talking about three and four and five dates a day sometimes. I did as many as seven. Seven, wow. Uh, now, th those are three-hour sessions. Wow. Except that there were times during a three-hour session mm. that a producer would come in on a five-minute break and come into our date and say, Hal, we need the tambourine on the song we're doing. Would you please, could you cut pop over? Yeah. And they put you on a contract. Amazing. So now you, you, it's another contract. Yeah. And pretty soon another producer would come in from another studio, say, Hal, we need a bongo drum on this particular commercial. Yeah. So now you're getting a commercial call. Yeah. Well, one day I had seven of those <laughs> calls. I had three regular big long calls yeah. and four that probably took five minutes, six minutes. Ah, okay. Yep, got it. Makes sense. And room. I... I was a quick study, mm -hmm. you know, and I read the music, yeah. and I got to know everybody, and our reputation preceded us. Yeah. They knew that we were not druggies, yep. there was no booze, right. we were all addicted to coffee yeah. and Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, right. But that professionals. Was about it. Yeah, professionals. 
Exactly, exactly. Can you say, what do you think the top two or three things, qualities, a drummer or any musician need to know, whether in the studio or live? Well, I, there, I used to come up with sayings because I was kind of silly. Mm-hmm. But I had one saying, if you smile, you stay around a while. If you pout, you're out. <laughs> Love it. And That's great. The guys, because a lot of times, guys didn't realize, and I saw this happen several times. Mm. We'd be setting up for a date. In my case, I had a valet mm-hmm. who actually we started his own cartage business. Mm. Oh. But I never touched a drum. I just walked in, sat down, and played. Ah, got it. But you, would, you know, guys would walk in. I started contracting quite a bit, mm. and guys would walk in, and I would hear them say. They'd look at the music and say, ah, the same old crap every day. Mm. And then I'd have to go over them, and I'd grab them, and I'd take them aside, and I'd say, listen, do you like your new car? Do you like your Mm. new home? Mm -hmm. You've got to understand that all these microphones are on, and there was a producer or an artist in the booth talking business, and he heard you say something like, same old crap every day. Yeah. I don't want that guy in my session. I want a guy that's going to make hits. Absolutely. So you, be, if you smile, you stay around a while. If you pout, you're out. That's great. And that really caught on with a lot of the guys. There were all kinds of little sayings like that. Yes. That uh, that really worked. And and so that was part of our reputation. We're clean. Mm. Clean guys that did just wonderful work, and that that was it. Well, and the importance of relationships, too, right? I mean, just being a good person. The camaraderie was unbelievable. We had James, believe it or not, his name is James Bond. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Bond, one of the great bass players, played upright bass, Mm -hmm. and also Lyle Ritz from Portland, who was the upright bass player. Mm -hmm. But our major Fender player was Ray... Pullman. Ray Pullman. P-O-H-L-M-A-N. He was a mm. great arranger mm. and a great leader, and one of the great Fender bass players. Mm. Were there other challenges or obstacles for you, Hal, with all of this? I don't think there were, there were actually obstacles. It's just that certain contractors mm. who kind of ruled the industry, they're the people that hired you. Yeah. Some of those people, uh, they hated to call us because we were the kids off the street with the Levi's. We didn't wear the three-piece suits Mm -hmm. or the blue blazers with neckties and carry our own ashtrays or clean our own ashtrays. So (laughs) those kind of people, I mean, there was nothing you could do about it. There were certain contractors, some some of those contractors came to me and said, why won't you accept my calls? I'd Mm. love to have you on some movies. Mm. And I used to tell them, to be honest with you, records were the business. Mm. And if I went in to do a movie, Mm -hmm. I was was actually uh, had to be there from early on perhaps all day long working on the movie. Right. And as much as I loved the music, sometimes that music would bring tears to my eyes. Mm. I was really, uh, you know, hung up on music. I loved yeah. music. Yeah. And these people, 
started offering me all these kind of uh, rewards. Yes. Look, I'll give you double scale. I'll, wow. I'll pay you. You can get more doubles mm. if you do a movie with me. And so once in a while I would take a movie if it was a slow week or mm -hmm, something. Mm -hmm. But rarely. Uh, and recently, the Glenn Campbell movie yeah. was the fifth the fifth Oscar winner that of a movie that I had worked on. Wow. I had worked on. Well, I can't even think right now. Well, um, certainly The Graduate, right, with Simon and Garfield. Oh, The Graduate, absolutely, yeah, yeah. The Graduate. Yes. True Grit, of course, of yeah. course. Wow, amazing. So you did the drums um, on True Grit. <laughs> on True Grit, on that true, on the original True Grit. Yes, yes. Um, for an example, I was working doing Sideline when I first came to Hollywood. Sideline is when they hire a musician to be in a scene mm -hmm. and fake that you're playing mm -hmm. some pre-recorded music, yeah. maybe for a dance, for a wedding, for a bar mitzvah, yes. for whatever it is. Yeah. And so you you kind of get the the bug, mm -hmm. and I, you know I immediately joined the uh, the Screen Actors Guild, mm -hmm. and you know, all of a sudden I became one of those guys. Yeah. And when Steve McQueen did his movie, Baby the Rain Must Fall, I happened to have been on the record, Baby the Rain Must Fall. And I think that fellow just died recently, mm. one of the great singers. Uh, and, and I became Steve McQueen's drummer. Wow. But Glenn Campbell and I, Glenn and I, who were, you know, four, the, the, some of the, the forefathers of the wrecking crew. Yeah. Glenn and I became Steve McQueen's country band, little honky-tonk band. That's incredible. And so those things get around to the industry, and they know we're sober, they know we're straight, yeah. they know we can play just about anything, right. just about anything. Absolutely. That's why producers were coming from France, from Germany, from mm. England, from everywhere, South America. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing that we could play... Because in those days, you had to learn dance music. And because people danced so much in those days, sure. but they were dancing to Latin music. They were dancing to waltzes. They were dancing to 6-8 kind of music. They were yes. dancing to umpapa bands right. and stuff like that. That's right. And so drummers like myself, we were heavily trained in all those dances. Absolutely. So we could immediately play it. I remember I got a call one time at Universal and the producer came out at one point and said there's a scene right here uh, and I'm sitting behind barriers just to avoid leakage as the drummer. Sure. And, and of course you would understand that. Mm -hmm. and, and the producer came out and said, and said uh, drummer excuse me but we're going to be doing some uh, Indian music. There's a downtown Baghdad, India, or something, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So he said, I'd love for you to, to get on the, the top of the Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at Universal, Universal refused to pay cottage bills to people who had to bring their own huh. guitars or drums or whatever. They would only pay cottage for harps because a harp was a big instrument yes. and a woman couldn't carry it. Sure. And so, I go, and, and, and they had a room 
on the music stage, and they had every known instrument. So I run back there to get some tablas, and there are no tablas. Mm. Well, I can't go to the producer and say, we don't have tablas. Right. So I rearrange my drums a little bit by tuning them certain ways. Wow. And using, using my sticks a certain way and my fingers. Yeah. But we had we did the scene. Mm. And when we finished the scene, this producer came out. We took a five-minute break. And he came to me and he said, listen, young man, that was some of the best top work I ever heard in my life. <laughs> and, of course, I never copped out that yeah. they weren't toddlers. Yeah, but had I not had that kind of training yeah. and listened to that kind of music, wow. that's some of the hardest music, the, the, yes. the music of India. Absolutely. It's really tough music. Yes, yeah. Can, can anyway, can I was lucky that way. That, absolutely. That, I had a good year, and I could just replicate some of that stuff. Yes, no question. Can we talk about the evolution of your drum set for a minute? Because you know, when, yeah, sure. when we see the the vi- videos and and photos of like when you're in the studio with the Beach Boys in the '60s, it's it's basically a four piece kit. If I'm not exactly, mistaken. exactly, but, that's but, what everybody had. Yeah, and then it got bigger. Say a little bit more about uh, your evolution of your kit. But- well, I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what happened, David, and, and your listeners. Yes. Um, I'm a rather inventive person. Mm-hmm. I invented a tambourine that attached mm-hmm. to the hi-hat on the drum. Wow. So when you're with little bands, you could have it. It was almost like having a per- an extra percussion with Yes, it. yes. Percussionist. Uh, I had a tambourine that went on there. I had a cowbell that fit on. I made a cowbell holder mm-hmm. on the top of my hi hat, yeah. so that I could play eighth notes on the hi hat, and also do the Latin tick, 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 tick. Yes, that kind of thing in between those eighth notes. Uh, it's just that kind of stuff. Yeah. And when I was, when I was, and I loved music, and I, mm. and I loved, and I was writing songs and doing mm. stuff. And I loved the fact that I had a call from a, a wonderful young producer, unfortunately passed away, mm. by the name of Terry Melcher. Mm-hmm. And Terry was the daughter, was the son of Doris Day, a wonderful mm. lady at Columbia. Sure. We used to do some of her records. Mm-hmm. But Terry start, became a producer at Columbia, mm-hmm. and we were doing records like The Birds, mm-hmm. yes. um, Bruce and Terry. Uh, yeah. I can't even think of all those mm-hmm. rock groups and surfing groups yes. and so forth. And uh, anyway, when I got the, some of the... I got a call from Terry that he was going to do a particular Frankie Lane song. We had been working with Frankie Lane. Mm-hmm. And he said, can you do something a little bit different? I, I really want to do some crazy, freaky drum stuff behind him. And I said, well, I'll try. Mm-hmm. And I took a set of timbales that I had, my Latin timbales, metal timbales. Mm-hmm. And I put a tom-tom holder on the small one. Mm-hmm. And I put three legs on the large one. And that's what I use for the set of drums. And if you ever hear the record, Don't Make My Baby Blue, mm-hmm. you will hear what the drums sounded, sounded like. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And so I thought, God, if I had a, an octave of these, I could do all kinds of things. Yes. And nobody had those kind of things in those days. So mm. I went out and I experimented with these timbales because I could, if I could hit a, a, a timbale and by loosening the, keeping the loose head, mm. by hitting it, mm -hmm. I would get fall off or decay. Mm -hmm. So I could hit a gun, boom, mm. boom, yeah. boom, boom. And then I decided I'm got to go for an octave so I can really play and tune some octaves Yes. and play and tune. And so then I started working with the carpenters. And that's when you hear some of the drum fills that I was doing. And the carpenters just loved them. And, and, and don't get me wrong, Karen was a fine drummer. She just didn't have the studio chops. Sure, sure. She was great on stage, and she was such a sweet lady. We became very good friends, just like Dennis Wilson and I became yes. very good friends. Yes, uh, Karen was just a sweetheart. And, of course, that, that whole story with Karen sure. is so sad. And is. she went into that whatever it was. Anyway... They loved what I was doing, and you can, if you listen to all those hits we did at first. Mm -hmm. The other thing, the other thing that you learn about being wanted or known or making a name for yourself, sometimes it works just the opposite, because we were doing different groups, and some of those groups, not all the groups, not the Beach Boys, not mm -hmm. the Birds, and not a lot of the great groups mm -hmm. that we were doing, uh, Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds, that mm. just popped out on me. Yeah. Um, um, come Saturday morning, uh, Monday, my mamas and papas. There was so many of those groups that we were doing. Mm. And what would happen was, is that they would be unknowns mm. and yes. people like Lou Adler, one of the great producers or whoever right. would bring us in and we would do a, a hit record with them became mm. number one. Right. All of a sudden they're big stars, mamas and papas. Absolutely. The big stars. Right. The monkeys. And every, the monkeys, the Partridge family. Mm. But anyway, every time we would approach the sixth or seventh hit, mm. maybe the eighth hit, mm. A lot of these musicians in the groups were thinking, oh, we don't need these guys. We're paying them a lot of money. We can make our own records. We know how yeah. to make records. Yeah. Right. That was always the beginning of the end of those groups that you never heard of again. Right, absolutely. It's really it's really a shame. And, and I don't mean that looking for Bravo. Or, sure. I mean, it, it was just our job to absolutely. make hits. Absolutely. And we loved doing it. Yeah. And it was great. Did it well, right? He did it well. Exactly, I, exactly. We had so many hit records going. It's just yeah, I It's just approaching my my personal discography. Discography mm. is what is it? Five thousand five hundred and some. Wow, that's it's really amazing that yes. I'm approaching six thousand. What helps you keep your passion for music today, Hal? You know, I don't have a real passion. I do enjoy, I do en enjoy jazz. One of my favorite, you know, there's certain highlights that you, yeah, that you do. I worked with the Count Basie Orchestra, mm -hmm. and it's just one of th what a thrill that was. Sure. 
because I was a big Basie fan. Yeah. And Bill Basie offered me the band. And so it goes on and on and on and on. Wow. But, you know, people like, like when I did, the stuff I did with Jimmy Webb, mm. one of the great young composers. Yes. We did MacArthur Park. And we worked with so many wonderful people. Uh, Johnny Rivers, Love Johnny who was Rivers. a youngster who started his own record label. Yes, he was one of the first multimillionaires in Hollywood. Wow, young kid, young kid from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Amazing, yeah. Who who spoke no Italian? The only <laughs> Italian I've ever known that that didn't speak a word of Italian. You're right, you're right. But yeah. the kid wrote. He they brought me in for a record called The Poor Side of Town. Side it was a town. major smash. Huge hit, yep. And I started, and I started doing wow. the Whiskey Go-Go. That was, a, you know, some of the outside jobs that I would yes. do. Yes. Once in a while, just special jobs. Yeah. Uh, the stuff with Johnny Rivers, the stuff with Kenny, Kenny Rogers, yes. exactly, yes. exactly. Nice. How, how did the business of music change for you since when you started till even now? What are the biggest changes you've seen? Well, the biggest change was that the Grammys started the Latin Grammys mm. for the South American element. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got to work with people like Las Lobos. Yeah. Uh, there were so many, you know, Latin people and Latin groups. Yes. So the Grammys started the the Latin Grammys. It's incredible. There's a there's a drummer in Miami by the name of Mel Levin, mm -hmm. and Mel has become one of the great South American mm. drummers. He and Richie Bravo mm. was a percussionist, a Latin percussionist, mm. and they're just amazing guys. They they built little small setups in their homes. Yeah. And people come from all over the world when they're doing Latin records, and they're hiring me and and and, uh, and uh, Richie wow. to do the Latin overdubs. Yeah. So these guys sit at home. They get a telephone call. It puts them on right on a, their tape machine. They play the song. Mm. They overdub the song and goodbye. Thank you. Right, that's amazing. <laughs> you got the greatest gig in the world. Right, right? yeah, it's terrific. That's it's terrific. Yeah, just in your living room, right? So it's amazing that you know the yeah. word, but the word gets around. Yes. Anyway, the big change, uh, the other big change, after the Latin Grammys started the R and B because they felt good, and we never did a Beach Boy record unless it felt good. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Brian would call me into the into the sound booth yeah. every time we finished a good take, and he would say, "Listen to this." If yeah. it, and if it felt right, I'd say, "Great." Yeah. I used to tell guys, I used to, when I would tell guys, I'd say, "Guys, if you make a little mistake somewhere, do mm. speak up. Sure, don't let them find this mistake when they start mixing the record right, right. a couple three days from now or a week from now." Yes. Speak up. Yeah. I made a little mistake. Let's do one more. Be mm -hmm. a man. That was really open, uh, sort of an open policy of just making a mistake, whether you're in session or wherever. Well, that was the nice part about the wrecking crew. The guys knew we were all very honest about stuff. Yeah. And if somebody made a mistake, mm -hmm. 
like I've told the guys before. Yeah. Stick around. Listen to a playback. Sure. If you hear something that you really don't like yes. and you want to do it over, speak up. Right. Nobody's going to get mad at you. Right. Um, and that's part of that was part of our reputation as being the good guys. Mm. That's just the way it was. Sure. There were a lot of musicians out there that mm. that just refused to say they made a mistake because mm. they're just great musicians and they don't make mistakes. Well, there are lots of guys that made mistakes. Sure, of course. That's all part of and, it. And unfortunately, what they would find it three days later, mm. and then they would call the they call the guy that that uh, made the mistake, and they'd call him in, or they'd call another guitar player in mm. to overdub and fix sure. it. Yep. And then they would tell the contractor, "I don't want that guy on my date anymore." Mm, right. So a lot of those guys quickly learn, man. If you make a mistake, sure, own up to it, man. Anybody yeah. can make a mistake. Absolutely. I yep. remember, you know, there's a record. And you would probably remember this record. It's called Be My Baby. Sure, of course. It was a record that we did with Phil Spector. Yeah. And it started out with that bass drum. Mm. Boom, 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 bang, boom, yeah. boom, boom, bang. Well, and I've, people have asked me about that. Was that a written? No, I don't think it was written. <laughs> All I remember is that I was so experienced mm. that when we were rehearsing it, I was probably doing it like a drummer. Boom, bing, right. boom, boom, bing, yeah. boom, bing. But it's very possible that when we started rolling, mm. that I was doing the bass drum part, mm -hmm. but maybe I dropped a stick. Right. I right. didn't have both sticks to hit the snare <laughs> and the floor time together. Right. So I just did it until somebody said, hey, I love that. Yes. Keep doing it the same way. That's how those things happen. It was just, it was just off the top of our head sometimes. Yeah, and, and that's magic. Some of the best, right? Some of the best accidents, as you know. Yes. Um, some of the best accidents become the biggest hits. Absolutely, and that certainly. And was. it happens in film too, because a lot of times a director will direct something a certain way, mm. and it comes off a different way, and the director says, "I love that. Do it that way." Yeah. How much do you still play now, Hal? Do you play at all? I rarely play. I have yeah. a beautiful new. I am now in the, the company that I was endorsing went. Well, they went back to China. Is what they did, mm. um, and they were wonderful to me for, mm -hmm. for a number of years. But I have now signed with the DW mm -hmm. Drummers Workshop. Yep, uh, DW Drums. I've been with the Zildjian cymbals since the 40s. Wow. I bought those cymbals when I was a kid. Amazing. Mm. And it's what's amazing is that the Zildjian company now has just come out with a new series called Avedis. Yes. Avedis mm -hmm. was the original Armenian or Turkish guy. Yes. And a terrific man. Yeah. And they're now making a cymbal that they're calling the Warm sound of the 60s yeah. yeah and those were my all my symbols that's fantastic yep and so they just gave me a brand new set of symbols lovely the, the, the Avedis symbols amazing and the DW people I don't know there's very few drummers I, that I know that are not playing DW drums they're yeah. just the greatest yeah they're great drums no question they do some unbelievable they're engineers they have some yes. engineers that do unbelievable absolutely Stuff. Mm, 
Yeah. And it reminds me of me when I was in trying to be inventive and fix, you know, do stuff. Uh, but I love my new drums. They, they, DW just pr- presented me with a set of Blue Sparkle. Oh, beautiful. Which is what I really started out with, with mm. Ludwig. Yeah, nice. And, and, and it was, you know, something that I learned from Ludwig. Mm. When I was a Ludwig drummer, I was loyal to Ludwig. Yes. To Ludwig. When I designed and had the monster set built, the yes. active, I gave it all to, to Ludwig. Wow. Like a good little boy. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Hopefully it's in a museum somewhere, right? Well, I didn't know from patent designs and, and engineering, things like that. Yeah. And they, of course, thanked me. They were happy that I was their biggest seller for many years. Yeah. It's incredible. And they called it the Octopus. The Octopus. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was hoping they'd call it the Halblane Monster Set. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, they had right. the Gene Krupa set yeah, and the Buddy Rich set. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted my set. Don Rickles came to me after about, well, opening night, nobody was in the place, in this little place. Slate Brothers in Hollywood. Mm. By the third night, you couldn't get in. Amazing. And I remember Don Rickles coming to me after the third, because Clark Abel was sitting ringside. Mm. And Don Rickles came to me and said, hell, I can't believe it. Clark Abel wants me in a movie with him. I'm going to be in the movies with him. Wow. Because Don Rickles had studied acting. He really wanted to be an actor. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, it was thrilling for me to be a small part of yeah. these guys becoming what they became. Absolutely. If you weren't a musician, Hal, do you think you would be a stand-up comic because you've got a great sense of humor? I would probably be fighting the acting bug. Mm. I would probably be still working because if I'd have stuck, stuck with acting... Mm. I have a hunch that eventually the right thing would have come along. Yeah. Because I started to get to know lots of directors and a lot of good people. Mm. I just signed a, a contract with MGM TV, but MGM TV is talking about the possibility of making The Wrecking Crew mm. a series, a TV series. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. I hope that happens. So, Three of us signed contracts with MGM. That sounds great. I'd love to see that. So you never know. You know, I just, I loved mm. the stand-up thing. I did, I did an album one time yeah. for David Grisman, mm-hmm. who was famous for his dog music with, with uh, the Grateful Dead and all these people. Yes. And I was going up there and recording with David. Mm. Um, I just had a flair for... And maybe it's it, it's the ego part of of the yeah sure being the being a drummer and being yeah. an egomaniac <laughs> sure yeah although I never lived on that I never yeah. felt that way yeah. for some reason I mean it was just not me yeah. it was me and a whole bunch of people amazing amazing career in closing how for people who are watching this years down the road uh, listening to this what advice do you have for other musicians and the next generation of folks who are coming down the line with music you know I tell I tell musicians who are now studying don't be afraid to read music when you when you study music it's like you don't just steer a car you learn how to steer that's how right. to step on the brakes. That's right. You learn how to 
turn on the radio. You yes. learn how to wave at people. Right. You learn how to park. Yeah. I mean, you have to learn mm. how to be, especially a studio musician. If you're going to play studios with composers, yeah. when you, when people come along and lay a part in front of you and you say, I'm sorry, I don't read music, they're never going to call you again. That's right. You're expected to read music. So I tell kids, and I, and I use the analogy of driving a car. And say, you know, when you drove a car, the first time you were in the behind the wheel, you were white-knuckled. Right. You were scared. Yeah. You were looking for anyone walking or the red light coming yes. up or whatever. And before you know it, once it became second nature, you're waving at people, you're mm-hmm. got your arm out, you hit the... Yeah. You hit the signals. You're a driver. Right. And that's exactly what it is with drumming. You've really played on the soundtrack of our lives, Hal, and uh, I just really want to thank you for all your music and everything oh, that you've listen, done. Oh, listen, it was industry. my pleasure. Yeah. Believe me when I tell you it was my pleasure. Yeah, it's, uh, I never did a date that I didn't appreciate. It was just absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hal Blaine, for being on Musicians on the Record. So many incredible stories. Thanks, Hal, for sharing. What was your favorite part of the interview? I loved hearing him talk about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, Elvis, Sinatra, playing with all of the legendary Wrecking Crew players. What an incredible career. Thank you, Mr. Hal Blaine, for being on the show. want to say thank you for listening. Let us know where you are in the world. You can leave us comments on iTunes as well as visit our website, musiciansontherecord.com. And again, just a reminder, if you'd like to watch all of these episodes, we have an audio podcast as well as a video podcast. They all live on YouTube at Musicians on the Record, on Facebook, and on our website, musiciansontherecord.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with somebody else who would enjoy it as well. And thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm David Ward for Musicians on the Record. Have a great day. (laughs) 